Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Uh, today, we are delighted to have Shabnam Samuel with her debut memoir, A Fractured Life. Shabnam is a writer, a business coach, and founder of an international writing retreat in India. She lives in D.C., where she hosts a local TV show and is a mentor with Empowered Women International. This is her first book. A Fractured Life has been praised as riveting, remarkable, an inspiration, brave, unapologetic, poignant, powerful, skillful, and profound. Let's please give her a warm round of applause. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone, and thank you all for coming out. I know it's a Saturday evening. There are so many other things to do, but I'm grateful that you guys are all here. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read a couple of um, snippets from different chapters, and then <clears throat> you, you're free to ask any questions you want. So a lot of us, um, a, a lot of my friends and family kind of asked me, why did you write this book? Because as you can tell, I'm Indian. Um, most of us don't talk about stuff that's happened. Uh, you're not supposed to. Um, so my reasons for writing were this. So when I started writing, there were just two lines that came to me that said, I'm beginning to realize that it was not always the fault in my stars. There were other faulty stars before me that dimmed my light. When I decided to write my story, I did it to prove that I exist. The title of my book, A Fractured Life, came to me while I sat one day to examine every decade of my life for the last five decades. Every decade that I paused and reflected on, there seemed to be a split, a splint, a tear, a rupture, and a fracture. Every decade was connected. Every year in chronological order that led to a decade had heartbreak, confusion, darkness, questions, and most times dark, murky secrets that were either mine or passed down from a generation or two. I had and still have no idea how to deal with the dark that seems to follow me around like a faithful companion. I have still not found the answers I've been searching for all my life. Sometimes new experiences or new encounters lead to clarifications, but I still seem to be unable to find the answers that I looked for even as a child, gazing up at the stars and the moon and wondering if I would ever twinkle or shine. So most of these passages are not going to make any sense to you unless you read the whole book together, but I'm just skipping through a couple of what I thought was important for me. Um, the, <clears throat> the next chapter that I'm going to read is called, And Then She Was Gone. My mother came to Katak when I was five. The reason I say that with such certainty is because my mother left home again when I was seven. In my life, I've had a lot of before my mother left moments and after my mother left moments. This is how I keep track of my history and weave my story together. After my mother returned, there was a lot of turmoil within the family. 
My grandparents were constantly angry. My mother was constantly gone. When she was home, she was to me this mysterious woman, always perfectly dressed, always perfectly accessorized, and always perfectly coiffured. She was either in her room reading, correcting school homework for the kids at the school she worked at, or just being reclusive and uncommunicative. Never once do I remember her asking me what I was doing, what I had eaten, whether I had done my homework, or even being a mother, just picking me up or giving me a hug. I don't remember having any kind of conversations with her. She was aloof to the point of not caring. Maybe she was thinking about my brother. Maybe that is why she never hugged or kissed me. Maybe she thought my brother would be sad if she loved me and didn't get to love him. Okay. Now I'm reading another chapter. It's called My Most Honored Guests Were the Ones Who Never Came. As a child in India, the day before my birthday was always a day filled with excitement. It was the day the tailor brought home my new clothes, the day the baker brought home my cake, and the day the household help went shopping for the tea party that was to be held in my honor in the on the 1st of April. I would sit on the porch steps and wonder who would give me what as a present. Would Mrs. Tucker give me the fourth book of the famous five by Enid Blyton? How much money might Auntie Radha put in my birthday card? Why did Papa and Granny insist on giving clothes as presents? But another thought persisted above all the others. Maybe, just maybe, the joke would finally be over. My parents would come to my party as a surprise, scoop me up in their arms and wish me a happy birthday. Maybe I could finally go to school and not have my friends ask questions about Papa and Granny that filled me with embarrassment and shame. Why is your father so old? How come your mother wears a dress and has blue eyes? The embarrassment and shame I experienced as a child over the absence of my parents made me a person who spun exceptional tales about life, stories that would have put Stephen King or John Grisham to shame. My parents, I would say, they're spies for the Indian Army and live abroad, most likely London. When extended family came to stay, on most days you would find me sitting behind a curtain or perched precariously on a balcony, sometimes even hiding under the bed listening. Eavesdropping to glean information from conversations was how I related to my family. I tried to piece together my history from the hushed tone phrases I could string together. Poor child, orphanage, what a trauma. How could a mother do such a thing? I knew better than to ask. No one would explain anything to me. It seems my grandparents' plan was that the words father, mother, mommy, or daddy were never to be mentioned in front of me. Still, I persisted with my hope of a birthday surprise. I wanted my parents, the young, age-appropriate ones. I wanted a normal dad who would drive a car and take me to school. A mother who was beautiful and ethereal in a sari, who would drop everything she was doing and hug me when I came back from school. I knew other younger parents did this. I had seen my friends. I carried ar around a lot of envy and sadness. Now, most of us in this room um, know, I mean, or have seen how opulent Indian weddings are and how much um, our parents put into it. So I'm going to read a chapter from my wedding, uh, if I can find it. So it's, this is called My Wedding Day. 
I had put my meager belongings together. Meager for someone who was getting ready to leave her parents' home and go to the home for, of her husband and in-laws. Meager and bare for an Indian girl according to the general standards. I owned six saris and had put them all in my suitcase. The saris were not new. My grandfather was a strong-willed man. I was marrying without his permission, nay, against his wishes. We were not on talking terms. There was no question of asking him, where is my stuff? The trousseau that had been collected through the years lay in the attic at Modi Bhavan when I was getting married. A few weeks earlier, I had gone out by myself to buy a sari for my wedding with the monthly paycheck of 500 rupees I had kept aside for my trousseau shopping. My wedding sari, which was cheap and shiny because that was all that I could afford, cost me 250 rupees. It was red and had zari on it that could blind anyone who came within a foot of me. I had nothing else. No gold jewelry to my name like all lucky Indian girls should have. No brand new pots and pans, no fridge, no makeup, no perfumes, nothing to take with me. I had a few old silver kameezes that I packed and that was it. I don't think I even wore new shoes or sandals on my wedding day. I was ashamed, ashamed to carry that old suitcase with me that had nothing in it. I remember folding every garment and my tears falling into the creases and folds. I was desolate and sad. This was supposed to be the happiest day in a girl's life. Here I was starting it out with tears and a sense of acute loss and alienation. And I'm going to jump to the last the chapters. And it's called The Past Comes to the Present. Sometime in 2015, my cell phone rang. I looked at the name that flashed on my phone screen, a name that I knew someone who hardly ever called me. The name that had flashed had first called me when my grandmother had passed away. I picked up my cell and the uneasy churning in the pit of my stomach started. The man at the other end of the line was my mother's husband. I have never addressed him as anything, not dad, he's not my biological father, not uncle, not even by his first name. Her husband called to tell me that he didn't think she would live long. I listened and asked a few questions. What happened? Does she have a full-time nurse? Is she on medication? Is she eating? And hung up the phone. What I really wanted to ask was, why did she abandon me? Has she ever asked about me? Did she ever love me? On the 5th of October, 2016, I left for India. I, fl <clears throat> I flew into Mumbai and took a flight to the town I was born in, the town where I grew up, got married, and had a child, a town that both shunned me and loved me for the 23 years that I lived there. It's a complicated relationship that I have with my town. A fortnight before I was to leave for India, a friend and I were sitting on my deck in the suburbs of Maryland, watching the sun set and sipping wine. I go back to India once a year in October to host a writer's retreat in a part of the country that is far, far away from the town that I was born. We talked about the retreat, the participants who had registered that year, and the different programs we were offering. How is your book coming along, my friend asked, knowing that I was in the midst of working on my memoir. It's going. That was my usual answer to everyone who asked that question. What I really wanted to say and could not say was, I don't know how to end it. Deep down in my heart, I knew that was not really true. All I had to do was ask questions and find my answers, and my book would wrap itself up. But how does one who has never felt entitled to their history and life even begin that process? 
Somewhere my childhood was locked away and I didn't have the courage to confront myself, to harness my memories and put them in paper in black and white. I'm going back to the place where my story began to see how it ends. As soon as I said these words to my friend, I knew that I was finally ready. I didn't know if it was the sunset, the wine or the sheer exhaustion of living in the shadows. I also knew that the person I needed answers from was my mother. She had suffered a stroke a couple of years earlier and was slipping into dementia. The day she was alert, she did not ask questions. The day she was not alert, the only two questions she had were about the two other children. She was afraid they had been kidnapped. She wanted to know if they had been found. Her husband tried to tell her that both her kids were there, <coughs> but she kept saying she had two more. She had a few lucid moments, but they were few and far between, I was told. She was failing to recognize people, even the ones who were close to her, and was relapsing into the past. I knew my time to get my answers was running out. I knew it would be a tough journey. Having been raised in a household where there were no heart-to-heart -heart talks, where family name and what we projected to the world was far more important than how we were feeling, I didn't even know how to begin. As I sat in the plane for the two and a half hours it took me to get from Mumbai in the western part of India to Katak in the eastern part of India, my stomach was churning and knotting. Here I was, going into a household and a past where I had no place or no home. I was not sure how to maneuver my physical being, my mental state, and my emotional state. Would I be shunned? Would I be looked upon suspiciously or I, would I be just someone who is trying to create trouble by stirring up parts of the past? What is my purpose? This question kept gnawing at my insides. Some friends and some of my cousins didn't quite know or understand why I wanted to thrust myself into a clock or a time warp that I could never turn back. Driving from the airport through the crowded streets of my little town to get to where my mother lived, I passed through streets and alleys that were at once familiar and alien. I saw a little girl, a long, long time ago, who wandered the streets, hoping to catch a glimpse of the life she could have lived. Searching, but still not connecting. She was not shy, but ashamed to exist. There was no turning back now. I was there. A quick prayer from my lips to give me strength, to keep me poised, and most importantly, to not hurt my half-siblings in any possible way. On the 7th of October, I walked into the room my mother was confined to. I was warned before I went in that she was mixing up people and was not getting names straight. She was living in the past as a young girl with her parents and her siblings. My sister-in-law held my mother's hand while I stood in front of her. She asked, Mommy, do you know who this is? My mother looked up, a faint smile playing on her lips. Her eyes were fading in gray. She held my right hand. What do you mean? Of course, that is my daughter Shabnam. We call her Boo Boo at home. Why do you think I will not recognize my own daughter? There was so much indignation in her voice. For a moment, I forgot that was, this was the first time that she had pub publicly acknowledged me as her daughter. The first time I was someone's daughter. The first time I was my mother's daughter. I was 55 years old that day. Um, after I met her, a, a poem just came to mind, and I'll just read that, and we can, I'll close my reading. She looked at me with those eyes, those brown eyes, those eyes that I saw every day, in the mirror when I brushed my teeth, in the mirror when I combed my hair. 
Did those eyes recognize my face? Did those eyes see her own eyes reflected in my eyes? Did she see the question in my eyes? And did she have the answer in her eyes? Dementia, do I see you reflected in her eyes? Or is the reflection a shadow of regret that she hides behind? Thank you all for listening. I started the retreat about four and a half, five years ago. Uh, it's a seven-day retreat. Um, so we have, part of it is yoga, meditation. Uh, we implement Ayurveda principles and practices into our writing. Uh, it helps with creativity. Um, so as, it's open to anyone and everyone. Uh, what we do is um, we start in the morning with group meditation, then we do yoga, then uh, you know we have breakfast and whatever, and then we have workshops. So I teach the nonfiction part of workshops and writing, and then I have somebody else who does the fiction and the poetry part. Um, and then after after we do the classes, we um, go back to our rooms and each one writes or works on what they're working on. And then we come together in the evening just to you know hash around ideas and I learn something from you, somebody learns something from me. And that's what we do. So I restrict it to about six or seven people uh, because then it loses that intimacy and that one-on-one -on -one interaction. And it's for seven days and six nights. Um, uh, so it's all vegetarian, home-cooked food. We go on hikes. We, you know, we go sightseeing. And it's up in the mountains in India. And um, kind of, we call them mountains, but they're little, you know. <laughs> um, and... There's barely internet service there, so we get away from the world. It's called PanchkiniWritersRetreat.com, and I think it's on. Yes, I think it's in the back of the book. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's in Panchkini, India. Yeah. Maharashtra. It's like, uh, and I'm not sure. If it's um. Lonavla Khandala, and then, like, have you heard of Mahabaleshwar? Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Panch. Yes, from Pune, yeah. You go from Pune, yeah. 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 So that's where it's held. It's held in a boarding school, so they have, like, eight or nine acres of just green greenery, and we go right after the rain, so everything is just fresh. It's like spring here. Everything is coming back to life. And um, the, and the kids are not in school. We do it when the kids are away for the the major holiday in India, which is Diwali. So we do it during that time. So, so your name is interesting. Too. Shabnam. Shabnam and then um, so, <laughs> so Shabnam was uh, my father was a Sikh. Okay. He was a Punjabi, um, and he used to write Urdu poetry. So I I'm thinking that's where my name came from. Because it's um, my brother has a typical Punjabi name, but I don't, so it's very and it's it's a Muslim name, it's a Persian name, so I, I think that's where it came from. And Samuel actually is my grandfather's last name, my maternal grandparents who raised me. It's their last name. They adopted me, so I got their name. But the original name was Samal, S A M A L, 
But because my grandfather was part of the British Army and he worked for the British, they changed his last name so that he could assimilate better. And they told him, you know, it's good for promotions, it's good for this, and so he changed his name. And that's how we became Samuels from Samuel. Yeah, yeah. That's how it came about. It means dewdrops. That's what my television show is about, yeah, dewdrops in words. <laughs> See the connection? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, thank you. Even your name is interesting. I'm like, okay, what is he? John? Yeah. Because that's an interface name. Yeah. That's my thing. Okay. Okay. Nice. Yes, I teach memoir writing and just be true to yourself and what your heart tells you to write about. <clears throat> um, while I was doing my book, a lot of things were, you know, okay, I'm going to write this. What is he going to think about it? But then you can never get a book out of it if you're constantly thinking about what's my cousin going to think or what's my uncle going to think? You can't do that. I mean, if you've decided to write a book and you want to talk about it, just just write it. Just, you know, be true to yourself and go with that. That's all. And don't be afraid. <laughs> yeah. It has, it's given me a lot of strength to kind of say, you know, I'm not afraid anymore or I'm not ashamed of, um, you know, who I was or um, not that any, there was anything bad about it, but it's just, you know, in India when I was growing up, people would ask whose daughter is she? I would be with my cousins and nobody would answer that question. So now, and then, you know, to tell, oh my, you know, my parents got divorced when I was, you don't, we, we couldn't say those sort of things in school. For now, I really don't care. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So your father was uh, also a Sikh? Yeah. He was a Mona Sardar. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you grew up, uh, because I'm asking, because I'm involved in the interfaith movement. So uh, so you grew up in a, your mother was also Sikh? Uh, so, my, so my mother is, uh, so it's, so my mother is half, half Indian and half Assyrian. My grandmother, my nani, uh -huh. is Assyrian. She, was, she, um, she left her country when they were persecuted by the Kurds way back in 1900. So they, they lived in a place called Urmia, which was right on top of Iran, bordering Russia. So when they started getting persecuted by the Kurds and you know, on, on basis of their faith, they were Christians, Orthodox Christians, so they all migrated towards Russia, and some came this way, some came this way. Then when they went to Russia, right after that, the Bolshevik Revolution started. And then they were persecuted again out of that land. Um, 
And so they came, they left all of that in Russia and walked right down to Baghdad where the Red Cross camp was. This was in the 1911 or 12, I wanna say. Um, and my grandfather was a soldier with the British Army for the First World War. So he was stationed in Iraq and they met at the Red Cross camp where they would go for prayer meetings and that's where he saw her. We think my grandmother must have been like 14 or 15 when she got married because she was seven or eight when she left her home country. You know, she lost her, um, her family while coming down and it was a, like a ma mass exodus. And I'm right now reading about that history and it's just fascinating. They have no land left. They're no more Assyrian, there's no Assyrian land. So now, actually last year, the first year they had a convention in DC um, where they want that land back, given back to them. And so that's a whole different issue, which I don't want to get into, but that's how it came about. And then they got married and uh, he brought her to India. So we were... Oh yes, yes, absolutely. And she would never talk about it. I mean, I didn't really know her story till I grew up. I mean, I, we kind of knew, but as kids, you're not, who really cares what she's going through, you know? So, but we grew up as Christians. Um, so when my mother married my father, that was a big no-no also. Uh, you know how it is in India and still is. Your interfaith marriages are not, are frowned upon. So, so that's what happened. Sure. My brother is in New York. Um, I met him when I was 18. Um, but you know, when you, it's like meeting a stranger. So we don't really have a relationship. And um, yeah, so I met him last week and I was in New York. So, but it's. Yeah. <laughs> Right, because I was on a tour, yeah. I met him because of the book. He hasn't read the book as yet. He doesn't know his pictures are in there, so <laughs> I'm waiting for that <laughs> explosion to happen. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they do. I actually, um, there were three people, I, I don't want to say sought permission, but three po people I talked to before I wrote the book. One was my son, who's absolutely, you know, because I write about his father in the book, so I wanted to make sure he was okay. Uh, if he had said no, I would not have written the book. I know I just said be brave, but you know, my son is a different story. <laughs> so uh, him and my two, I have two half siblings who actually didn't know I was their sister till about five years ago. Yeah, so um, so they know about the book. I've actually thanked them in the book. And Katri is actually, I have to introduce her. She's from Green Riders Press. She was, uh, she was an intern with the press and she knows my book inside out, right Katri? <laughs> yeah, she's. She's from Finland and was interning in Vermont with my publisher. And she was, she's on her way back and she was sweet enough to come here. Yes, I am, and um, I right now I'm calling it a historical fiction love story kind of a thing, but I don't know. It could change. So how old are you? I want to say 13 or 14. Yeah. Are you married a Christian? No. no. Hindu. Hindu? Okay. Are you still married? Or? 
I am married, but you'll know the story more in detail when you read the book. <laughs> yes, I am married. Yep, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.